Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, what is the duty to warn? So when I say duty to warn, I'm talking about the obligation in most jurisdictions that mental health professionals have if they're treating a client and that client makes a threat to another person or they have some reason to believe that client is going to harm another person. A lot of times when we think about the duty to warn, we think about a particular legal case, Tarasoff versus the Regents of the University of California. And this is really the dangerous intersection between mental health and the law. I've talked about this before in other videos. We're combining the responsibilities of a mental health clinician to treat a client and help that client with this idea of protecting other people, protecting the public from the client. So it gets into an area that a lot of counselors feel uncomfortable with, and there are actually a lot of reasons to feel uncomfortable with it because the law, the duty to warn law or the duty to protect law, is different in each state. So I'm going to start with talking about Tarasoff and then kind of move into the implications of the Tarasoff case. So it's interesting because when we talk about the Tarasoff case, we're really actually talking about two cases. There was a Tarasoff ruling in 1974 that provided this duty to warn, right? So a therapist had a duty to warn intended victims. But Tarasoff one, as I'll call it, the 1974 case, was actually vacated by Tarasoff II in 1976. And this changed the duty to warn over to a duty to protect. So in essence, this increased the options for the therapist a little bit. So now it was a duty to protect and not necessarily a duty to warn, but the therapist could still warn depending on the circumstances. So the key finding of this case, Tarasoff II, was that the protective privilege of therapy ends where public peril begins. So this element, of course, is shared with Tarasoff I. This was the finding in 1974 as well. This idea that there is a limit to confidentiality when the public is in danger. So now I'm going to get into the facts of this case. It's a fascinating case, and I think that a lot of times as mental health counselors, we hear a shortened and actually incorrect version of the Tarasoff case, and it really kind of leaves us a little bit confused as to what happened and why we have this law today. The short version that's incorrect that we hear a lot of times is there was a student who went to a counseling center at a university and he indicated he was going to harm somebody. He followed through with that and murdered a young woman, and during his time in therapy, 
the counselor didn't do anything, the therapist didn't do anything to try to stop him in any way. And you'll see from the facts of this case that, yes, there was a murder, and there was a person who expressed an interest in committing a murder, but in terms of the actions of the therapist, there were a lot of actions taken in order to stop this individual. So this is really interesting because, again, it diverges from what we hear so often about the Tarasov case. So we see that this case begins with a man named Prosinjit Podar. And Podar was a 35-year-old student at the University of California at Berkeley. And he started there in 1967. He was an exchange student from India. In the fall of 1968, he started a folk dancing class, and he met Tatiana Tarasov, and she's also known as Tanya Tarasov. She was 19 years old. They met weekly, and on New Year's Eve 1968, they kissed. Now, Podar thought that this meant that they had kind of a serious relationship, that this indicated the start of a serious relationship, but Tarasov was not interested, and she was actually involved with other men, and she indicated this to Podar. Podar took this rejection pretty seriously. He became severely depressed, and he would meet her still occasionally, and during these meetings, he recorded her and played the recordings back, trying to figure out why she didn't love him or what her feelings were in general. So Tarasov went to Brazil on vacation during the spring of 1969, and during this time, Podar improved. He actually went to a hospital that had an agreement with university and he was treated by a Dr. Gold. At that time he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and Dr. Gold referred him to Dr. Lawrence Moore who is a 34 year old therapist. Now Dr. Moore's wife had attempted suicide and attempted to murder their child so he had some significant stressors in his history as he started these sessions with Podar. So they met several times weekly and Moore noted that Podar had a pathological attraction to a young woman who had rejected him and that Podar fantasized about harming her. Now, Podar never told Dr. Moore that the woman was Tarasov, but Dr. Moore figured it out from the information he had available. On August 18, 1969, Dr. Moore determined from Podar's remarks that Podar, in fact, intended to kill Tarasov when she returned from this vacation in Brazil. Now at this time, Moore consulted with Dr. Gold and another doctor named Dr. Yandels. And the three professionals concurred that Podar should be committed involuntarily for evaluation. Now this is where things get a little bit tricky. There was a new law in California that authorized the police to pick up individuals who needed evaluation, and the law was somewhat confusing. Now, on August 20th, 1969, two days after Dr. Moore determined there was a threat, he contacted the police, and Moore told the police that he would sign a 72-hour hold for Podar. All they had to do was pick him up and transport him to the hospital. He also indicated in a letter to them that Podar can appear quite rational, but at other times appears quite psychotic. And at this point, he was a danger to the welfare of other people and himself. And specifically, he was threatening to kill an unnamed girl, and that he alluded strongly to a compulsion to get even with and hurt the girl. So we can see at this point that Dr. Moore's actions seem reasonable. Tarasov was in Brazil, so he really could take the two days from August 18th to August 20th 
to kind of figure things out. And he did determine he was a threat, and he contacted the police. So the police took Hodor into custody, and they interviewed him. And they concluded that he was rational and not a danger. And they actually indicated that he changed his attitude altogether. The police told Hodor to stay away from Tarasov, and they released him. Now, this, of course, seems clearly negligent, but it should be noted here that the timing's not clear in terms of the police and their decision, right? So they did make a decision to release Podar, but they may have been pressured by a mental health professional named Dr. Paulson, who was on vacation during a lot of these different discussions. When he came back from vacation, he ordered the campus police to return that letter that Dr. Moore had written to the police. And he further ordered Dr. Moore to destroy all of his notes that pertained to Podar and demanded that Moore take no further action to commit Podar. So we don't know what pressure, if any, Dr. Paulson exerted on the police at the time when they made the decision to release Podar. One thing, though, is fairly clear here, which is no one notified Tarasov or her family of Podar's threats. So action was taken to try to hospitalize Podar, and of course that action failed, but nobody told Tarasov what was going on. Now, Tarasov returned from Brazil, returned from vacation, and Podar approached her again. She rejected him again. And after this rejection, he went to her house. She wasn't there. He returned later with a pellet gun and a kitchen knife and confronted her. She was there alone at this time. He shot her with the pellet gun and chased her down and stabbed her to death with that kitchen knife in the yard. This was October 27, 1969. Podar then called the police and told them what he had done. Now, he was convicted of second-degree murder. On appeal, it was reduced to manslaughter. And then the California Supreme Court in 1974 determined that inadequate jury instructions had not given Podar a fair trial. So the conviction was reversed and he was remanded for retrial. Now, interestingly, he was never retried. There was an agreement made where he would leave the country, return to India, and if he never returned to the United States, he would not be retried. So he did return to India, and he eventually married a lawyer. So the murder occurred in 1969, and Podar was released in 1974. Now, Dr. Moore, the therapist, was fired from the clinic, and Tarasov's family sued the campus police and the university health service for negligence. No court before this had recognized a legal duty to warn the potential victim of a client. So this was all new territory when the Tarasov case was heard. So as you can see, this is a bit of an unusual case, the way it turned out, and it's much different from the short descriptions we hear in the mental health counseling field. The circumstances of the case really, I think, make it appear much differently than that short version and really give us insight into what the court might have been thinking as they were hearing eventually these two cases, Tarasov 1 and Tarasov 2. Now the actual civil case was settled with an out-of-court settlement. So no actual liability was found against the defendants in this case. But still we have these two findings, Tarasov 1 and Tarasov 2. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve and we will cover that. Plus, We will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. So what we see here is after Tarasov won, after the duty to warn case was established, the therapist protested. And what they really protested against was this idea that a therapist could reliably predict the violent acts of a client. And they also said that this warning would constitute a breach of confidentiality. This, of course, led to Tarasov 2, which vacated Tarasov 1. So the findings of Tarasov 1 are not in effect. Tarasov 2 was in 1976, of course, after 1974 with the first Tarasov case. So we see here again the duty to protect was put in place with Tarasov 2. So we see here at these findings that when a therapist determines or should have determined that a threat existed, that they need to take action. And this action can be trying to hospitalize a client, warning other people, warning the intended victim, or a variety of other actions. So they're not restricted here to a duty to warn. They can warn, but the duty is to protect. Now, it's also interesting with Tarasov, too, that it required non-negligent behavior, not perfection. Therapists are required to use a reasonable degree of skill knowledge and care ordinarily possessed by a member of that profession under similar circumstances. So it kind of was softened moving from Tarasov 1 to Tarasov 2, but still a big change for mental health clinicians and therapists. Now we had this duty to protect in place that affected everybody as other states started to hear cases kind of built on what happened with the Tarasov case. And this is where the problems really start with Tarasov too, and what we see here with the other states. We see that certain states have broadened Tarasov, other states have narrowed it, and some states don't really recognize it at all. So a mental health professional really needs to know the laws in the jurisdiction where they're operating as a therapist. We see that there have been some significant cases, and a lot of people kind of look at these cases and believe they apply to a wide region, but again, they're state-specific. Like we see a case again in California, 1980, Thompson versus the County of Alameda, that said that the Tarasov ruling did not apply to non-specific threats made against non-specific persons. So this finding required a readily identifiable victim, which of course was much different than what we saw in Tarasov too. So a lot of clinicians believe that there needs to be a clearly identified victim if they are to report it or to act in any way to protect. But that's not the case in some areas. We also see a lot of confusing language as we look at the various cases and their findings. Like we see that in some places, a counselor has no requirement to interrogate a client 
or conduct a special investigation to determine a victim's identity. But they are required to exercise a moment's reflection. That's the term, a moment's reflection, which may inadvertently reveal the victim's identity. But there's no real clarity on what that means. What is a moment's reflection? We know it's not a special investigation, but what is it? Now, once the therapist determines, or again, should have determined a foreseeable danger, then they are liable for exercising a reasonable care to protect the potential victim. So this gets into a lot of gray areas, and I think that's really the big struggle with Tarasoft too, and all these other findings, is that many clinicians don't know what the findings are that affect them in their particular state. We see research that indicates a large percent of clinicians don't understand the duty to protect or the duty to warn. Most know that it exists, but they don't know the details. They don't know what their actual responsibilities are, technically speaking. Now, knowing that all the laws are different from state to state, the general idea in most states is that if a therapist breaks confidentiality because they're trying to warn somebody that's in danger, they can't be held liable for that. So most clinicians, again, realize that. They understand the basic ideas of Tarasoff or whatever law affects them in their particular state. And interestingly, most therapists agree that a duty to warn or a duty to protect is necessary, that it's really ethically mandated, part of the profession, but not necessarily something that they should have to do legally. Although, again, most know that that legal component is there in some form. So I think there were a lot of concerns after Tarasoff II that would have a chilling effect on therapeutic relationships. The evidence doesn't support that. There was also this fear that mental health professionals would not want to treat clients who are dangerous. We have mixed findings here. There are definitely some therapists that will not treat clients who are dangerous. And specifically, they cite Tarasoff and the subsequent findings as the reason. Now, that's another kind of ethical debate to get into, but it has had a chilling effect in that way. Now, I don't know if many mental health clinicians will say that kind of publicly, right? I don't know if many will say they're simply not going to treat people they think are dangerous. But from talking to clinicians and being in this field for a long time, it definitely has an impact on how counselors and other mental health professionals run their practice. If you practice because that's how you make a living, which is what happens most of the time when counselors are in practice, and you have a client who repeatedly makes threats, you repeatedly hospitalize that client, there comes a point where a counselor just may not want that liability. So they'll find a reason to discharge that client, to refer them to another level of care or another professional. Now again, as I said, that gets into another ethical debate, but we do see this effect from Tarasoff too. And this is somewhat problematic. I think that with the laws varying from state to state, again, mental health professionals might not know that law, and clients certainly wouldn't know that law. So if the therapist doesn't know what the law is, how are they going to communicate to the client in terms of informed consent what would have to happen if there was a threat made? Now, I've seen another interesting kind of occurrence here with Tarasoff II and the other findings where mental health professionals in their informed consent specifically talk about the duty to protect and kind of frame it in a way to let the client know what they should and shouldn't talk about. So now some professionals are really saying, look, just don't talk about it if you don't want me to act. Now, the client has to know what the limits of confidentiality are, but at the same time, clinicians are more or less saying, don't tell me anything 
that could be dangerous because I don't want to have to get involved with hospitalizing and warning other people. So this really is a gray area. And again, as I talked about before, I've always found areas where mental health and the law intersect to be very dangerous. We have, again, this one area where we're trying to protect the public and this other area where we're trying to help the client. But then there's this third area that nobody talks about, which is mental health counselors just trying to make a living and kind of staying at peace. And sometimes that means they don't want to get involved in these situations. Look at all the work that Dr. Moore, in this case, in the Tarasov case, went through. Writing a letter to the police, personally talking to police officers, documenting everything with this client. And yet he was still fired from that clinic. Now, I certainly don't know Dr. Moore's feelings on Tarasov, but it would be reasonable to think that somebody in that situation would have wished that they never met that client. Right, so that's kind of what I'm talking about here. This is a really tricky and dangerous intersection. So with all this kind of ambiguity and this release of liability when there's a potential danger, what should mental health therapists do? What's the best course of action? Well, the first thing would be to know the laws in your jurisdiction. That's crucial. To understand the duty to warn and the duty to protect as it affects you as a clinician. Also, you have to really look at that informed consent and make sure the client does understand that that duty to protect is there. But of course, you'd have to be careful and not encourage a client to withhold information too. So there's kind of a delicate balance that occurs here. I think really what's important is to treat every client according to the standard of care, to do your best job, to make sure that there is some sort of danger, that the public or whoever is being affected by that is protected. Also, I think consulting with other professionals and seeking supervision makes a lot of sense. We see in the Tarasoff case, of course, that Dr. Moore did seek consultation from other professionals, which I think was an intelligent and rational decision, although, of course, the end result still wasn't favorable, but I think that part was a good decision. So it makes sense to seek supervision, consultation, to try to involve other professionals in the case and hope that their experience and their training can aid you in decisions. I think it's also important to document what's going on very carefully in the notes and to try to illustrate clearly why you made each decision, what evidence led you to each decision in the case. Cases that involve a danger to a third party are difficult to handle and they're stressful. So another component would be, as a mental health clinician, it might be a good idea just to seek therapy when you have some of these kind of dangerous cases, just to make sure that you're staying competent and grounded and not getting like compassion fatigue or burned out or stressed out. The impact of the Tarasoff too really puts clinicians in a tough place because clinicians don't want to be sued, right? They want to perform their job and kind of stay out of all lawsuits. On one side you have this concern that a client would sue a clinician for breach of confidentiality. On the other side you have this concern that somebody who's harmed by the client would sue the counselor, the clinician. So it becomes kind of a dangerous environment and a tough environment for the clinician to make the decisions, a lot of pressure. Fortunately, cases that involve violence like this aren't particularly common, and lawsuits against therapists are rarely successful. But again, it's important that therapists do a good job, document everything carefully, and seek supervision. We have to make smart moves in terms of protecting the client and the public, and also ourselves as professionals. 
This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.